We're going to be over in Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. Story of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. There was a story of Coach Tom Landry. Some of you may remember, legendary coach of the Dallas Cowboys. He was a good coach. When he was fired, I stopped cheering for the Cowboys forever. <laughs> but boy, was he ever a good coach. I sure enjoyed him. But a story about Coach Tom Landry and Coach Woody Hayes. I was told, a, this is how it was written by Charles Swindoll in his, hope, in his, his book called Hope Again. I was told of a wonderful story about Coach Tom Landry that illustrates the level of his Christian love for others. Years ago, the late Ohio State coach Woody Hayes was fired for striking an opposing player on the sidelines during a football game. The press had a field day with the firing and really tarred and feathered the former Buckeye coach. Few people in America could have felt lower than he at that time. He had not only lost control in a game and did a foolish thing, but he also lost his job and much of the respect others had for him. At the end of the season, a large, prestigious banquet was held for professional athletes, and Tom Landry, of course, was invited. Guess whom he took with him as his invited guest? Woody Hayes, the man everyone was being encouraged to hate and criticize. We have a parable here in front of us, and this parable is, tr is primarily about mercy. And if you turn over with me to the book of Luke, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now this really was a lawyer's term that he just gave to him. What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Or how do you read it? So he's speaking to the lawyer in a language that he understands. Now a lawyer in those days is not a lawyer of our days. They are worlds apart. They have the same name, but they're not the same thing. A lawyer in the Bible days was someone who helped you understand the law and apply it to your life. A lawyer, of course, today... Oh, I guess that's enough said. Huh? <laughs> yeah, they're very, very different. So when you see the word lawyer, don't take what you think of today as a lawyer and relate it because it's not the same thing. This is one of the religious leaders. This is one of the ones that would be teaching them and to, to try and help them. And of course, amongst the, the with the same thing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and such, you have ones that were sincere and ones that were not. But here we seem to have a lawyer who was sincere. What is your reading in the law? What is, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now he should be able to, to quote this off the top of his head because he was a lawyer. This is what he made his, uh, his living off of, is to, do the, is to uh, know these kind of things. And so he there... Uh, could quote it right off the bat. And he knew what the law required of him. Now, let's go on to a misunderstood verse here. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. 
But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, sometimes we look at this and we get the idea that this guy wanted to justify himself in the presence of all the people. That this guy wanted to put Jesus down. That this guy was trying to trick Jesus into something. However, when Jesus picked up a wrong attitude amongst people before, what did he usually say? What did he usually say? What was written in the Gospels? And Jesus perceived their thoughts. And Jesus knew what their thoughts were. Jesus always seemed to be given what their thoughts were, but with this man, nothing is given. And he does not give him an answer to try and uncover some nasty thought or idea. He simply answers his question. If Jesus truthfully and sincerely answers the question that the lawyer asked, how can we assume anything else but that the question was sincere? So when it says here that he wished to justify himself, we sometimes look at that and we think, well, he was trying to make Jesus look bad. He's trying to make him look foolish. And there were times that lawyers tried to do that with Jesus. But this does not seem to be that case. In this particular case, it seems like he really wanted to know what the idea was. And so what you have here is a lawyer, a person whose job it was to take what was written in the law of the, of the Word of God and to help you live your life by it. So people would come to him and ask him, how shall I live righteously? How shall I become justified before God? And he was giving them the best answer that he could, but it seemed that on the inside of himself, he was asking, having this, this thing come up, this just doesn't seem to be right. There, seems, there must be more to this. Now here's part of the problem that he had. Him, he as a lawyer... And what the lawyers would teach the Jewish people was that your neighbor could only be a Jew. A neighbor could not be a Gentile. A neighbor could only be a Jew. And so this is what the lawyer was taught in his lawyer schools that he would be brought up in. He, and under the lawyer authority that he was out, he would go out and he would sit, they would say, who is my neighbor? And he would say, well, Jewish people. Because this is what was there. But it seemed that on the inside of this particular lawyer, something was gnawing at him. Something was telling him, this is not entirely true. Because the Word of God says he wished to justify himself. He does not care what others think about him. There's nothing in the story that tells us that this man cared what other people thought of him. He didn't care what other lawyers thought of him because he asked Jesus this question. He asked him a question that the other lawyers already had answered. Who is my neighbor. And Jesus answered him sincerely. This man seemed that there was a discrepancy between what he was taught and what he was feeling on the inside. And so what he did was he came to Jesus and saw him as an authority on this. And he said, getting to this, this question, how, how will I become righteous? How will I be justified? And Jesus said, well, what's the law tell you? How do you read the law? And he says, well, this is, this is what... Uh, we tell people, this is what I'm told, this is how I read it, whatever it was. And when Jesus said, well, you answered right. That's what you need to do. Go out there and do it. But yet we haven't gotten to the answer yet, the, the problem yet. So he says, who is my neighbor? This man is not trying to sidestep acting neighborly. He's trying to understand who am I supposed to be neighborly to. Because if, and I'm assuming this, but if what the lawyer is feeling 
is that there are more neighbors out there than just Jewish people, then we have a problem because we're not acting neighborly to those who are not Jewish. Gentiles were not acted neighborly like because the lawyers were teaching the people they are not your neighbor. And Samaritans were the most despised because they were half Jew and half Gentile. And the Jewish folks didn't like that at all. So as a lawyer, he belonged to a class of teachers declaring that no Gentile was a neighbor. And when he said the second question of this lawyer was asked to justify himself with himself. He's not trying to justify himself with the others. He's trying to justify himself with what's going on on the inside of him. And as we said, the lawyer must have been genuine because Jesus answered him as such. Who is my neighbor? And so he begins to go on and to tell the story. Let's read it together. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance... Here's a real neat word. Jesus is telling the story. He's making it up. And he says, by chance. A little bit of sarcasm here on Jesus' part. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I need to tell you a little bit about this, uh, this journey right here. This, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 15 miles long. From Jerusalem to Jericho is about 15 miles long. The people in this story are going to be a priest and a Levite. And what Jericho served as was the place of residence when the priests and the Levites were not serving. So when they were in Jerusalem, they had a place to stay while they served in the temple. But when they were done with their duties, they would go over to Jericho and they would stay there. It was about a 15-mile trip. Now, this partic- during this particular time when Jesus is telling this story, there were a lot of thieves along the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The reason there were a lot of thieves was Herod had just laid off 40,000 temple workers as they were working on the temple. 40,000 temple workers were laid off. And many of these became thieves and they populated the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. How many of them? I don't know, but there were a lot of them. And they were trying to make a living in, in this way. Now, generally, they left the priests and the Levites alone. And they worked on other people. But this is where the two, two cities are. Of course, Jerusalem is a blessed city, the city of peace. Jericho was a cursed city. Verse 31, Now by chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You ever have that happen to you? See somebody you don't want to see and you pass by on the other side? Just like, well, I didn't really see them there and I just happened to be crossing the street anyway and just to get on the other side. And, and then, of course, you're looking the other way and not seeing where they are. And, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 32. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, here's where Jesus changes the story. He starts off with a priest. He goes on to a Levite. Now, a, a priest is a Levite. But a Levite is not a priest. Not all. There were some Levites that were just there for temple duty. 
But you could not be a priest unless you were a Levite. But just because you were a Levite didn't mean you got to be a priest. Only so many of them were needed. So they had priests and Levites. So they're both of the tribe of Levi. But then the natural progression here would be to go from a priest to a Levite to a Jew. And Jesus skipped the Jew. He went right over to the Samaritan. Now this probably, the listeners are probably anticipating the story. All right, a priest. All right, a Levite. Now we got a Jew. And then he didn't say that. He said Samaritan. Why do we have Samaritans in the story? But Jesus decided to bring it in this way. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he sent him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? (laughs) Well, which one would you like to say? If you were the lawyer, who would you like to not say? Because we don't want to attribute anything good to the Samaritans. But we had a a priest and a Levite. And he can't pick then. They both did the same thing. The only one who did anything different was a Samaritan. Now, the, the lawyer's answer is good here. He never says Samaritan. He simply says, He who showed him mercy. He who showed mercy on him. I guess I'll leave it up to everybody else. You know, I'm not going to say who it is, you know, whoever showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Now, here we have the characters in this. We have the cities. Jerusalem was God's chosen city, the center of worship. And it was the home of the temple. And Jericho was a city of curse. And by this time it had become a home to priests and Levites. As we already told you. A priest was a man consecrated to God and a servant of the law. He probably just had finished his time of prayer to God and sacrificial service to the people. Because can you imagine this? Here's the priest. He's been serving. I don't know how many months that they served. But however many months they served, he's over there. He comes to his last day. He gets to have some time off. And he's heading on down to Jericho. He's been serving the people. Working the sacrifices. Taking care of all the things that go on there. Taking care of God's temple. Polishing up the gold. Polishing up the brass. Making everything look good. Making everything sure everything shines. Sweeping out the dirt. Whatever might be there. Whatever his duties were. He was performing these duties for as many months as would go on. And then, after we leave the presence of God. After we leave the sacrificial... Uh, elements that were that were brought after we served all the people and cleaned up all the stuff and polished all the gold and spent all this time in the house of god we then walk on home and we see people a person here on the road all beat up and we go on the other side it's kind of like when you're in your car listening to worship music song after song after song just having a good old time and you know, breaking off into tongues and all of a sudden somebody pulls out and does something stupid. And you go from all that time of praising and worshiping God and speaking in tongues and just giving glory to God to all of a sudden out of your mouth comes, what a dope, what are you doing that for? <laughs> right? Isn't it kind of like that? Well, here comes this guy, here's this priest, serving God, taking care of the, the, 
the, the sacrifices, offering them up to God, taking care of the sins of the people. And here he has his opportunity. What's he do? Crosses over on the other side. If I'm over here on the other side, you know, I don't necessarily have to have seen anything on that side because I'm walking on this side. <laughs> Same person that would say, uh, you need to make restitution for your sins. You need to bring the sacrificial animal. What is it, what is it that you're bringing? What is it that you have done? What is it the law needs to... Or what's, what's the law have to say about taking care of your sin? Well, I've done this or I've, I've involved myself in that. Very good. You need to do this. You need to bring this animal. And here they are walking on the other side of the road pretending like they don't see because there's a person on the road. He might be saying to himself, I've been serving God for all these months. I'm kind of tired. I just want to get on home and just relax for a little while. And the Levite comes, does the same thing, crosses on the other side. Somehow, we get the idea that if we cross the road on the other side, God won't hold us responsible. Well, I was going to hold you responsible, but then you cross through the other side of the road, and you know, well, I guess you didn't see it. These aren't highways. These aren't so busy, you know, people going back and forth, you'd miss it. He's probably the only one on the road. There's the only person laying down on the road and we go off on the other side. He's probably hoping nobody else is on the road because nobody else will see him cross over to the other side. When it says he crossed over to the other side, understand, he was walking on the side of the road where the man was and then sees the man up ahead. You know, first off, when you look at something, you have to figure it out. What is that? What is that? Oh, it's a, that's a man. Oh, he's down. So you're sitting there, you're looking at that thing, studying that thing, taking it in, trying to figure out what it is, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, oh, I need to go over on this side. I need to cross over over here and get away from that. And we had two people that did that. But then we come to the third guy. The third guy, this is a Samaritan. You can just feel the crowd that is there. Ew. Ew. You ever have those actors that when they show up in a movie, you know they're the murderer. You ever had that? You watch, you're watching a show and somebody shows up, I already know, they're the bad guy. They wouldn't be in this unless they were the bad guy. They're the bad guy. They're always the bad guy. Very seldom do we have people go from being the bad guy to the good guy. They're always the bad guy. What was that movie? There's a movie out my um, son and daughter really enjoyed um takes place back in the old days and they had the jousting and the and the swords and stuff like that but they were using all modern songs in the thing i don't know what it was called knight's tale is that what it is it was it was kind of comical i saw most of it i didn't see i don't know if i saw all of it but you know the the guy who was the villain from that point on anytime he showed up i didn't like him i didn't like him and he showed up in some show was trying to be the good guy and I never could say, he, he never sold me on being a good guy because I already saw him as the bad guy. He is the bad guy. He will always be the bad guy. That's just who he is. He's the bad guy. It's kind of like what the Samaritans are. The Samaritans are always the bad guy. They're never the good guy. They're always the bad guy. Back way back in the movies, you know, the, the good guy always wore... Good guy always wore white. The bad guy always wore... 
black. That's just how it was. If the guy rode into town on a white horse with a white suit and a white cowboy hat, he's the good guy. If the guy rode into, into town on a black horse with a black suit and a black cowboy hat, he's the bad guy. We don't need anybody to tell us. We already know. <laughs> That's how it is. Now they've changed it since then. And now the good guys and the bad guys wear black. <laughs> well, they're not both wearing white. They're <laughs> I think they're all out there wearing black anymore. seems to be the better color. I don't know. I just can't buy cowboys wearing white. That just doesn't quite uh, fit. Not quite sure why that's going on. So we had the priest, we had the Levite, and we had the Samaritan. The Samaritan, of course, is the mixture of Jewish and Gentile blood. I've told you this before, but always uh, repeated for those people who weren't there. People who, um, who've gone through the walk through the Bible will remember that this is how you can remember where Samaria was. That you had um, Jerusalem, which was in the land of Judea. And you had, had um, Israel to the north. And then you had some area in between. <laughs> Samaria would be that one. But they were despised folks. They were people, they were, they were actually a Jewish group that was left during the captivity. And they didn't hold their Jewish roots. They didn't stay amongst the Jewish people. They took wives and husbands from outside of the Jewish people. And the race became mixed. And so from those Jewish people who made sure, who were taken into captivity, but made sure that their bloodline stayed pure Jew, they despised them. And this is why. This is, this is why they had, had done so. So we have the Samaritan who shows up. And the Samaritan is the guy who, who doesn't cross over to the other side. He comes over to where the man is and he, he starts tending to his, his wounds. He starts helping him out, managing him up. And he puts him on the animal that he was riding. And he walks while the wounded man gets to, to ride into town. And he brings him into town and he takes him to the hotel that's there. He says, you make sure that anything he needs is taken care of. Here's some money. Spend as much as you need to get him taken care of. Bring in the doctors, bring in whatever you have to do, but take care of him. And if there's more that you spend, when I come back, I'll take care of that too. So this man who had no responsibility, who didn't hurt the man who was down on the ground, just came upon him, spent his own money, used his own animal, and promised, I'll pay you more if, if more is needed. And then rode off. And so Jesus says, who was the one who was neighborly? And the lawyer said, I guess the one who showed more mercy. I guess the one who was merciful. And Jesus said, you're right. Go and do likewise. So this is the parable. These are the things that are done. What is the purpose of the parable? The purpose is our neighbor is not whom we would like it to be, but whom God has declared it to be. Our neighbor is not whom we would like it to be, but whom God has declared it to be. The priest and the Levite did not want this man, even though we don't know his, we don't know, you know, whether he was liked or disliked by them. We just know that they did not want to be neighborly to him. 
They did not want to be the man's neighbor. Our neighbor is not whom we would like it to be, but whom God has declared it to be. Whom has God declared to be our neighbor? People that are in need of help. We don't know if this man, the Samaritan, lived anywhere close to where the man who was down on the ground. So it was not proximity that caused it. They were in the same area. He needed help. And he ventured out there to help him. There are stories that were told. I believe Charles Swindoll says, uh, uh, again, Charles Swindoll in another, a different book, Improving Your Serve. He tells of this. A young woman was brutally attacked as she returned to her apartment late one night. She screamed and shrieked as she fought for her life, yelling until she was hoarse for 30 minutes as she was beaten and abused. 38 people watched the half-hour episode in fascination from their windows. Not one so much as walked over to the telephone and called the police. She died that night as 38 witnesses stared in silence. Another experience was similar. Riding on a subway, a 17-year-old youth was quietly minding his own business when he was stabbed repeatedly in the stomach by attackers. Eleven riders watched the stabbing, but none came to assist the young man. Even after the thugs had fled the train, had pulled out, and I'm sorry, even after the thugs had fled and the train had pulled out of the station, and he lay there in a pool of his own blood, not one of the eleven came to his aid. Less dramatic but equally shocking was the ordeal of a lady in New York City while shopping on Fifth Avenue in busy Manhattan. The lady tripped and broke her leg. Dazed and anguished and in shock, she called out for help. Not for two minutes, not for 20 minutes, but for 40 minutes as shoppers and busy executives, students and merchants walked around her and stepped over her, completely ignoring her cries after literally hundreds had passed by. A cab driver finally pulled over, hauled her into his taxi, and took her to the local hospital. Who was her neighbor? I wrote this in your outline. Interpretation of the law is never an excuse for obedience to the law. Interpretation of the law is never an excuse for obedience to the law. We can find ourselves very often in the same condition that this lawyer was. Where on the outside, we have the interpretation of the law, but on the inside, we're being spoken. That's not right. You need to take care of that. You need to help that thing there. You need to not say that. You need to not think that. You need to not do that. But inside, or outside, I'm, I'm putting it together. Wait a minute. This one said this, and this one said this, and this one said, I should be okay. But on the inside, down in my spirit, my spirit is coming up saying, no, no. Don't do that. Don't go that way. Stay out of that. I keep hearing, no, no, but, well, you know, I see what the Scripture says, but, you know, this is what I've always been told. Interpretation of the law is never an excuse for obedience to the law. And God does not want us to just be obedient to a law that is written. He wants a law written on our hearts. He wants us to know, what is the Spirit of God saying to do now? What has God led you to do on this one? Follow it. Do it. So how is mercy defined in this story? First off, it was unearned. Mercy was unearned. You cannot earn mercy. 
If we earn mercy, it is no longer mercy. Cannot earn mercy. Therefore, if we can't earn mercy from God, others cannot earn mercy from us. We have got to stop expecting other people to earn mercy from us because we did not earn it from God. We extend mercy. It is unearned. The character of the person showing mercy is the issue. Too often, we want to get it turned around and we start looking at the character of the one receiving the mercy. Well, I don't know. You know, they've messed up an awful lot of times. I don't know if we ought to extend mercy again. Been an awful lot of times they haven't done what they're supposed to do. I've helped them out before. Now, there does come a time that God says that's enough mercy. You saw that with Saul and a few others where God said, Samuel, get up. I've rejected Saul. Let's go. We need to move on. God extended mercy to Israel. Moses even pleaded for more mercy and God gave it. And then finally God said, that's enough. No more mercy. This generation will die. The next generation will go in. But the character of the person showing the mercy is the issue. When you face a situation like a Good Samaritan situation, it is your character that is being tested, not theirs. How will you come through? Are we always required to show mercy? Are we always required to show mercy? Well, not when it's terribly inconvenient. Right? Isn't that what we should get from the story? Not when it's terribly... No, this... It was inconvenient for the priest. It was inconvenient for the Levite. It certainly would have been inconvenient for the Samaritan. But the one who's praised is the one who gives it. Convenience isn't... Isn't it? Are we always required to show mercy? Assume mercy needs to be shown unless God says, don't show it right now. And there are times God pulls back on mercy. But... Generally, you keep extending it. You keep extending mercy. And especially for this guy, he's a Samaritan. He doesn't know that this, who this person is. How does he know how many times he's been walking? He may be thinking, well, I don't know. This is a pretty common road. He ought to know better than to come on down this road. Well, he's on the same road. We can always come up with the reasons why this one shouldn't get mercy but don't look for reasons why. Look for what, what can I do to extend mercy to this person? Are some people more called to mercy? Well, there are certainly some people for whom it seems to come easier. <laughs> but we're all called to give mercy. We're all called to keep on going. Extend mercy. Extend mercy when it's inconvenient. And just know, the person who's on, on test, on, on uh, being tested here, is you. You're the one. Jesus said, who was more neighborly? The question was, who is my neighbor? The story is about who is the neighbor. It has nothing to do with the guy on the side of the road. It has everything to do with the one who had opportunity to extend mercy and refused and those who had opportunity to extend mercy and did it. It's about the extension of mercy. As a neighbor, be merciful. We are neighbors to all. What is the consequence of withholding mercy? Oh, what's the consequence of withholding forgiveness? 
What's the consequence of withholding love? Just don't get, don't get into withholding. Don't get into holding back stuff. If God gave it to us, give it out to others. What we have freely received, freely give. Just keep on extending mercy. How much mercy should you extend? I mean, un, people like the, um, the Good Samaritan coming upon the guy on the side of the road might be easier than extending mercy to someone that you know. Sometimes they're harder because they've wore us out a little bit. We don't like necessarily the things that they've done, but keep extending mercy. Until God comes up on the inside and says, no, hold on. Don't extend mercy on this one. You need to... And there are times when that will have more effect. But do it because God led you, not because, well, this is terribly inconvenient. Well, I don't really feel like doing this right now. But extend mercy. Now, in our society, we're not into that mode of extending mercy. Our society right now is getting us into this mode of judgment. We always are getting into a place. We are pumped with information about who we are to judge. For the longest time, haven't we been pushed into an area to judge those who smoke cigarettes? I mean, really, when we think about it, what is our first thought, for those of us especially who don't smoke, what is our first thought about those who smoke cigarettes? Oh, you disgusting person. Putting that filthy stuff in the air for us to have to breathe. No. What's our thought about those who, who, uh, who drink? Oh, you disgusting person. Here you are putting people at risk that are on the road because of your drinking. But this is what our society continues to tell us about stuff. And now we, you know, what's our, what's our thought about Wall Street? Oh, those terrible, terrible people. I mean, they're greedy and they're always out for themselves. They want to take all of my money. And so now we've been out to villainize the people on Wall Street. So everybody on Wall Street, they're evil. We see the stock market go down. Yes! Because Wall Street is evil. How is it that Wall Street got the the bum rap and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are still looked on as good? Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are the ones who created all, like 90% of our financial crisis. And yet, they're the ones that we look on as good. And Wall Street, bad. Bad Wall Street. Wall Street can't be having to bail out. we got this whole financial bill that we're putting out there. And they're going to try and sell it to you on the fact that we're going to control, we're going to take money out of the hands of these Wall Street people. And we're going to make the insurance company or the, the credit card companies not charge you so much interest. interest. And the fees, we're going to control all the fees and stuff. That's the bait. And if you all buy into it and buy into that bait, what's going to happen is they're all telling you, no more bailouts. That's not true. What is in the financial legislation is bailouts for those the government selects. And by doing so, they will then be able to take over any financial institution in the country if they deem it is close to failing. You want that? Let's see, here's the bait. Lower interest rate on your credit card. You know what you're paying for for that? A couple of banks have already stopped free checking because they don't have any way to pay for it anymore. But we have a villain. BP is an easy villain, isn't it? How many times do the press and the people in government 
get up and tell us how bad BP is, how evil BP is, even to the point that our President of the United States bypassed the judicial system, bypassed the written law of the Congress, executed, actually wrote his own law, executed it, bypassed the judiciary, and put out a punitive punishment on a company, all in one fell swoop. And you know why he did it? Because we all look at BP as bad. And we all see BP as evil. And so anything that we do against them is good. That is not right. Up until that point, and I'm not going to defend British Petroleum. Folks, I don't buy BP gas. I don't buy it for... I have three different reasons why I don't buy BP gas. I had them before the oil spill. I purposely avoided BP gas stations. One, because I saw them as British Petroleum. I'd rather buy from someone that's an American company. That's my number one reason. A second reason, there's a BP gas station across the street from us that is always, always, always 10 cents higher than everybody else. And they are always the first one to raise their price. Always. I got so aggravated at that, I said, I'm not buying your gas. And when I had to fill up my little, my little tank for the lawnmower, I would drive two miles to the Hess station instead of going one block to the BP station. This is before the oil spill. <laughs> I didn't like BP. I still don't necessarily like BP. I'm not trying to defend them. They're going to get... See, the, the judicial system is set up that people who have a legitimate claim will come to the judicial system and say, give us, here's, our, here's where we've been hurt. But our president decided that's not good enough, we're going to bypass it. The law, just written back with the, with the Exxon Valdez, the, law, the Congress executed a law of $75 million would cap out anything for any future oil spills. And the president just decided, you know what, that's not high enough. We've just pushed it to $20 billion. And they extorted that money from BP. And one senator had the guts to stand up and say, you extorted the money and I apologize. And the Republican Party got all over him and he had her camp. But that was wrong. And it's all done because we create a villain. And no mercy. No mercy for BP. You know what? BP is going to get their own. They may not even survive as a company. And if they don't survive as a company, there you go. If they did stuff that was wrong that caused the explosion or helped bring it, along, bring it along, it'll be found out and they'll be taken care of. But then the president went out there and said, all oil wells have to be shut down. And BP has to pay their salaries. Well, it wasn't BP's fault that all the other oil wells went down. It was whose? It was our president. So why does BP have to pay for that? Because we've made them into a villain. And so therefore, we, we just bypass all the normal stuff. We got a villain. We don't, we don't extend mercy to them. So then the judicial courts came out and said, no, Mr. President, that is illegal. And so the president then decided, all right, we're going to do it again. And they executed another order to shut down all the drilling in the Gulf. I don't know about you, but if we're going to have drilling in the Gulf, who do you want to do it? Us or Brazil? Us or Mexico? 
Us or British Petroleum? Who do you want to be doing it? I think we do it. We ought to do it. We get the oil. We get the money. And if there's a problem, we clean it up because we're responsible for it. And we can have our companies in there who certainly ought to be looking out for it better. But you see, you have to create a villain. And in the last year, folks, our president and our Congress has created more villains and gotten people angry. And you know what we get out of? No more do we extend mercy. All we extend now is judgment. And we have judgment for all kinds of people. Don't buy into this. Don't get it. You get into this kind of mentality and you are ready to bypass all sorts of laws. The president... The administration is called the executive branch for a reason. They execute the laws written by the legislative branch, which is who? The administration cannot write laws, yet this one has. The Congress writes laws. We may not even like them, but they write the laws, and the executive branch executes them. The judicial branch decides when they have been broken. But we're getting our whole system all messed up because we have a villain. In this story, there was a villain, the Samaritan. And Jesus messed up the story and turned it all around so that the villain wasn't the villain. The Samaritan's always the villain, but he wasn't the villain here. You have got to get out of this mentality and do not let the world pull you into this because they are trying. If they continually get you to be angry at this and angry at that and angry over here, then you will go for whatever it is that they tell you to go for. Even to the point when laws are broken and powers are usurped. Don't buy into it. The mentality that Jesus is saying here is that we look at who's down. And regardless of how they became down, regardless of how they got into that condition, our responsibility as a neighbor is to help them out. What would have been really good with this whole thing with BP is if we all got together. And hey, you know what? Let's stop it. Let's fix it. And let's correct it. But we didn't do that. Instead, it seems like things were purposely done to make this situation worse. Do you know that when they finally got the skimmers there, it was well over a month, they finally got the skimmers there. Do you know that the Coast Guard shut down the skimmers? Anybody hear about that? The Coast Guard moved in and shut down the skimmers, told them all they had to stop. Skimming the oil. You know why? Because they needed to check and make sure that they had life preservers. That's actually true. The president wouldn't authorize skimmers to be taken from other parts of the country for a place where it was needed. Do you know why? We don't know. They might be needed there sometime. That was their reason. They had skimmers other places in the country, but they might be they're there, you know, for emergencies and they might have an emergency and decided not to do it. We had other countries who offered us help. And you know why we turn them down? Because they aren't union people. 
And there's a particular uh, law that's on the books that you have to bypass, which people have done in times past for emergencies. But you see, we need a villain. We need a villain. I could bore you. To, you could keep on telling you here and just bore you with all the details of all the people who have tried to stop this and the effect and how all of them have been stopped by government officials. Every single effort that could have prevented this from being bad has been purposely stopped by government officials. Why? Because we need a crisis and then you need a villain. If you have a crisis and a villain, people will agree to whatever it is that you want. In this particular situation, you have a crisis and you have a Samaritan who's supposed to be the villain. But he comes along and helps. This country has faced many, many struggles. And we will face more, as will other countries. But we have to face them with mercy in mind. Be merciful. Be merciful. Don't sit there and judge. Well, you, no, uh Well, uh, and get here and be angry and, and all this sort of stuff. Don't do it. Because the press is trying to get you that. Katie Kirk's out there trying to create villains. If Dan Rather was still working, he'd be creating villains. You got all the other guys that are out there trying to create villains, trying to bombard you with stuff and tell you how bad all this stuff is and what's going on. You know, as long as the oil is in the ocean, it, is, it poses very little threat. Well, what about all the birds and stuff that die? You know that the windmills they want to put out in the oceans and on the land kill more birds in a year? I mean, than, than this thing could ever do. Tens of thousands of birds. Rare birds. Protected birds. Slaughtered by windmills. But they don't care about that. That isn't an issue because we need a villain. Stand guard against this mentality. The way that you stand guard against it is to always have a mindset of mercy. You know what Wall Street deserves? Extend the mercy. If you don't know what's going on, extend the mercy. Auto companies, extend the mercy. BP, you know what? Extend Br British Petroleum Mercy, get this thing under control, and then investigate it and find out what's going on. And then whatever punishment needs to be done, deal it out, you deal it out. We have ways for that. Who is my neighbor? The original question he said is, how can I be justified? What's the law say? What does the law say? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Go out there and do it. Well, who is my neighbor? And so then Jesus gets on to the whole thing about mercy. If you get out of the mentality of extending mercy, it will mess with your spirit. It'll mess with your spirit. Don't get into that. Don't get into that. I tell you all the time about Katie Couric and stuff like that. I despise the deception 
they put out on people. But I have to still, in my mind, extend mercy to even Katie Kirk. To even who I don't even know who I don't even know the names of these guys anymore. Whoever it is that's out there. We must be people of mercy. People of mercy. See, now we're getting polarized in this country. And if somebody comes up and says, I'm a Democrat, what happens to if you're a Republican? Judgment. Now, now be merciful. I told you this story, I think, before. When my wife and I and my son were out on vacation, we sat at a table and we met the wife first. And we're talking to her and she, you know, she told me about her husband. We're from New York. And he's and she got nervous because you know, I was from Philadelphia. And uh, he's a big sports fan. He says, oh, so am I. Well, he really likes the Giants. Oh, and I really like the Eagles. And we thought this was going to be a clash of the Titans. We thought this was going to be a horrible time at the dinner. But oh, he and I, we had the wonderful time talking about other teams. I, I talked about his Giants. And I told him, boy, those, things you got, those two runner backs you have over there, oh, they are something else. And boy, the offensive line you have. And he would say, oh, but this that you have over here. Oh. And we just kept talking about the, the strengths of the other team and the, and the weaknesses. There, there. We had the best. I had one of the best sport conversations I ever had with someone who's a giant fan. <laughs> and a big giant fan. You know why? Because you keep the mentality of mercy. Just because someone is a Giants fan doesn't mean they're doomed for hell. It's the Cowboys fans you have to watch out for. They're the ones. <laughs> no, we even extend mercy to cowboy fans. It doesn't because as soon as you get into the mentality, oh, Giants fan, oh, I despise you. Why? Simply because I like one team and you like another. Simply because I'm a one political persuasion and you're of another pers- political persuasion. That's the reason to hate, despise. That's the reason to 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 not have mercy. No, we need to get out of that mentality. Because it's the same mentality got into the church and because this one spoke in tongues and this one didn't, we hate you. Because this one believes in healing and this one doesn't, we hate you. Because this one believes in baptism by water and this one believes in baptism by sprinkling, we hate you, we'll burn down your church. And things like that got started. Why? Because there's no mercy. It's all judgment. Get out of that mentality. Don't let the world pull you into that mentality. No matter how many times the president, no matter how many times Harry Reid, no matter how many times Nancy Pelosi gets up as head of whatever group that they're head of and begin to tell you about how evil this person is and how evil this group is and how much we need to change things, don't get angry. Don't get bitter. Don't do it. Extend mercy. Someone said, when government breaks down, the fix is more government. When private enterprise breaks down, the fix is a judge and a jury. Why is it that one group is held to such high standards and the other one is not? Because they've got you into a mentality where you do not extend mercy. You know what? I'll bet you anything that BP did not intend for an oil rig.
to blow up. I bet you they didn't intend that. I bet you the folks that had the Exxon Valdez didn't intend for that tanker to get spilled. I bet you there's a whole lot of disasters that happened that people did not intend for them to happen. But what happens? We immediately get that mentality that says, Oh, you are wrong. You are evil. You brought this thing on. Don't do it. Don't do it. You know what? People make mistakes. People make errors. Accidents even happen. But our mentality must be we extend mercy. We come upon a problem of a man in the road beaten and bleeding. We don't sit there and say, drum up anger against the people who did it. Drum up investigations to find out who is it who did this thing. What do we do? We bend down. We treat the wounds. We bandage up what's bleeding. We carry them into town. We take care of their needs. There's not a whole lot of bandaging going on anymore. It seems like anymore we're throwing salt on the wounds. We're stirring up things. We don't need to be doing that. Democrats and Republicans can get along. Conservatives and liberals can get along. No matter what we mentality we're of, we can get along with other people. If we follow God's way and we extend mercy and we be merciful, that's what we need to do. Be people of mercy. We're called to walk in love. We're called to walk in forgiveness. We're called to have mercy for the people that are around us. Just because somebody doesn't see things the way you do doesn't mean that you're right. Doesn't mean that they're wrong. It doesn't mean that you have to sit there and judge them. You don't need to do it all. During World War I, the story of a German soldier who plunged into an out-of-the-way shell hole. And what he found inside was a wounded enemy. German soldier found an American soldier bleeding and dying. The American soldier could barely talk, but he pointed to his pocket. So the German soldier went inside and he found in the pocket some pictures of his family. And so the German soldier held up the pictures for him to see. And as the man slipped away and died, he was able to see his family just that one last time. The bullets are all firing all around. The bombs are going off all around. But in that hole in the ground with a dying American soldier and a German soldier, all differences were put aside. It isn't because the war stopped. It's because they realized in the midst of a war that they were both human. And they treated each other as human. Let us not forget, in the midst of a war, in the midst of all the firing, all the shells that are going on around us, we are amongst other human beings. And they all deserve mercy. Because we receive mercy. Father, we thank you for the help that you give us to not adopt the mentality of the world, to quick, be quick to judge, to be quick to anger, 
to do all the, no, Father, that's just not the way that you want us to be. You want us to see a needy person or hurting person and to extend mercy. Not to find out what their political affiliation is. Not to find out whether they're a sports fan of our team. But to just simply extend mercy. Who is my neighbor? Anyone who's in need of someone to be neighborly. Help us, Father, to be that person. To not be the one who crosses the street because it's inconvenient. And because maybe we don't like that particular person. Father, we're going to be neighborly. We're going to extend mercy. We're going to be that good Samaritan. Thank you for the help that you give us. If we adopt this mentality all the time and always stay merciful, the joy of the Lord will be at home in us. Anger, strife, and division will not be. Father, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I hope you all brought in a lot of the political stuff here today just because there is so much of this going on. It is trying to pull us into this judgment mentality. We are not called to that, folks. We are Christians. You can be a liberal Christian. You can be a conservative Christian. You can be a Democratic Christian. You can be a Republican Christian. You can be a Dallas Cowboy fan, Philadelphia Eagles fan, Pittsburgh Steelers fan, Christian. It does not matter. We are still Christians and we are brothers and sisters and we are to have love for each other and extend mercy even on people like Wall Street and BP and folks that have had some problems. Folks that need mercy. Make sure you maintain that mentality. Sure will help us out in the things we do.